Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, please, to John. We're going to go to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And then also, would you take, keep your finger there, bookmark, and go over to Isaiah, chapter 29. I invite you, encourage you to bring your Bibles because I encourage you to highlight, to write in the margins so that you go home and look at it later. So I really encourage you to do that. So we're going to go to John chapter 1. We're going to pick that up and in a moment, Isaiah 29. This is the account of John regarding Jesus, the Emmanuel. He just finished talking about God with us. And John is making reference to Jesus God manifesting him in the flesh. And so let's pick this up. John 1 verse 10. He, Jesus, was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Okay, just before I go to the Isaiah passage, did you? let's make sure we grab that. Jesus came to a world, the one who created the, he was part of the creation of the universe, who himself created us. He came to this world. The world we live did not receive or receive him or give him honor when he came in flesh. Him who gave us life, when he came, we didn't honor him back. Though we would speak, people at that time would speak of his coming, we did not recognize him when he actually came. The series we're talking here is a series, Holy, simply called Holy. And the purpose of the series is to how God can we position ourselves before a a broken people, unholy people, How do we position ourselves to experience your glory, a holy God, when the gap is just so big? Do we understand how great that gap really is? And so so there's going to be a number of Sundays, and it's, uh, it's a difficult task. I find this is actually one of the most hardest little series that I have put together because, uh, I feel so limited in language. I feel so limited in understanding. And to try to say something that is spirit in the flesh, it's it's hard. Uh, Let's go to Isaiah. And we're going to read chapter 29. We're going to pick it up in verse 13, Isaiah 29. I'm going to read from the New King James Version, and then I'm going to read from the New International, just to give the two different flavors for us. Picking it up in the New King James, Isaiah 29, verse 13. Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear towards me, God says, is taught by the commandment of men. Can I just back that up a bit now? As much as these people draw near me with their mouths and honor me with their lips. In other words, we are going through worship, we speak of him, we talk of him, we say all the right things. But he says, but have removed their hearts from me. Now, you can't remove something if it wasn't moved there in the first place. can't remove it. So, there is a pulling away, 
and their fear towards me is taught by the commandments of men. So these people here, it says, uh, say all the right things, their lips, their words, but they've removed me from their hearts and their approach to me, their concept of me, their fear of me, their, their reverence of me has been determined by people. In other words, it's not been determined by me. People have painted what they believe I am, he says. That's, Isaiah is speaking on behalf of the Lord. He says, this is what they draw near, but how they perceive me is how they have learned through others to perceive me. Let's pick it up in the NIV. The New International says it this way. These people come near me, near to me with their mouths, honor me with your lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now note this part. Their worship of me, not unlike our worship time, their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. Their worship is according to what's taught of man. Therefore, he's saying, people have reduced the glory of the Lord to the glory of corruptible man. We are serving a holy God in an image we've created. In other words, we have fashioned him to how we want him. Now, if that's true, now I know I'm feeling pushback because I've felt pushback on this too. No, I don't. No, I don't. I worship you the way the Bible says to worship you. No, I don't. But you can't erase the impact of the traditions and the values of our society upon our own heart in our approach to God. Because, how do we know this is to be true? Because if we worshiped him in truth and in his glory, then his glory would be revealed, the same glory that was revealed in the First Testament church. We would see such an outpouring all around us. Now, you don't have to take a hard look to realize that's not happening. It happens in pockets. So there's a disconnection between something that he meant for it to be and to where we actually are today. And I shared last night, we were in prayers, Daniel chapter 9. I said, Daniel in chapter 9, read the first 19 verses, there's a tension. Over and over, the first 14 verses, he talks of this tension, this tension. It's a good tension, but it's the tension between what God says should be and what was actually happening. And that's where we enter into the place of prayer. Prayer, intercession, is when I begin to recognize God is saying something, but it's not happening. So do I just go on and say, well, I'm waiting in the sovereignty of God. In his good timing, it'll happen. It's not God's problem. <laughs> it's fine. God has already told us what he wants to do. He's waiting for the altar to be built. And when the altar's ready, the fire will fall. Hmm. So I guess the big question comes down, the rub here is, am I prepared to sacrifice what it takes to build that altar for me or not? Bible says many won't. So just don't go by what the people around you are doing. We'll say, well, well, they're doing this. I mean, we hear that over and over. Well, I'm doing what they're doing. But maybe we need to lift our standard a little bit beyond those around us. And I'm not talking about your family necessarily. But lift your standard to what's God asking of me. What's his standard? And that's really, that's where this series gets real fun. <laughs> it gets real fun. Because God is saying, listen, and, and the title of my message here is not made in man's image. 
God, his holiness, is not according to our image. But we tend to worship according to our image. We roll through some things based on our image. Now, I want to unpack that today. I want to talk about that. So I'm going to begin by taking you back to the Old Testament. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. The story in Exodus chapter 32, and I'm going to try to show this throughout Scripture. Exodus chapter 32 is the story of Moses and the people of Israel having come out of bondage. They've been delivered. God has set them free from their captives. Their captors have no longer any influence on them. They're on the way to God's blessings. And the invitation of God to the people that came out was, come up on the mountain, Mount Sinai. Come up. The invitation was to draw near. Come near. But the people, the populace said, we don't want to go near. They used all the right words. Well, God, you are great. We are not. We don't want to go. Never. If God invites you to something, that means it's possible. They said, no, it's not. Send Moses. So the invitation was for the multitude, but only one went. Moses went. Joshua went along with him. He goes to the mountain. Moses is on the mountain. The story Chapter 32, I'm, I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna read a verse in a moment though, but chapter 32 begins to unfold about uh, Moses goes up the mountain. The people were waiting as Moses met with God. People were waiting for what God was going to say to them. But days went by. People were to wait before God. Their waiting waned. Their waiting couldn't wait anymore. The people got antsy. They got fidgety. There's things to do, people to see, places to go. And so after a number of days, the people gathered together, and in their own wisdom, remember the wisdom that comes out of Egypt, in their own wisdom, they needed to do something to satisfy their need for worship. So what did they do? You know the story, if you've read the story, invites you to read Exodus again. So what did they do? The Bible says they brought in their different pieces of jewelry, they melted down the gold, and they made a calf. They made like a cow out of the gold, to worship it. So they made this golden calf. They put a substitute in place of the real. Moses is up talking to the one and only. They form, instead of waiting for his presence, they make this calf. You see the contrast. And we pick this up where although the calf might seem silly to us, I mean, I look at the calf, silly, why would you make a calf and worship a calf? Even just think about it. I mean, duh, if you made a calf, how can you think the calf is God? What does that make you, right? The carpenter of God or something? I don't know. But it doesn't make sense to, certainly me, not in the 21st century mindset here. They made a calf and they began to worship the calf. And they... Exodus chapter 32, let me just read the verse, verse 4. And this is what they said. Exodus 32, verse 4. Mark it in your Bibles. This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt, the calf. Now that word God, in the original Hebrew, is the word Yahweh. Yahweh. It was spelt, first of all, it was spelt Y-E-H-O-V-A-H. That was translated for English. Or, or Yahweh, Y-H-W-E-H, or Jehovah, same word. 
Same word. They called it Jehovah. It's the one word in the Bible used to define the existing one. Capital O. The existing one. It's the proper name for the one true God. Yahweh. Jehovah. And they use, here's the thing. They didn't call it God Baal. They didn't call it the cow God. They didn't call it the gold God. They didn't call it a God, small g. They called it the one name they should never have called it. Jehovah. They called their cow Jehovah. Now that was a sacred name. They called the cow the same name, the one true God who had revealed himself as the one true God, the only God. There is none beside him. You can't have multiplicities of God. There is one beside, none beside him. He is the one true God. And they called this cow Jehovah. Jehovah. Jehovah, the word Jehovah, is not used anywhere in the Bible ever to describe a false God. Ever. Yahweh, the name Yahweh was so sacred, a name. The Hebrew scribes were not even permitted to write it in full. They weren't allowed. So they could only, as a scribe, when they transcribed scriptures, they wrote it Y-H-W-H. You've seen it. Y-H, capital, Y-H-W-H. That's the, they weren't allowed to put the whole name in there because it's the one and only true God. So do you see what happened here? The Hebrew leaders that day, these are leaders, that day, pointed to a golden calf. They didn't call it Baal or a cow or another god. They used that one term that was meant for the glory of only one God. And they called him Yahweh. Yahweh. They weren't denying that Yahweh had delivered them from bondage. They believed that. They weren't denying that Yahweh was the great miracle worker. They believed that Yahweh was the great miracle worker. What happened that day is they reduced the greatness of God down to their level. That's what happened. They brought it down to what they were comfortable with. And this was in keeping with 400 years of captivity. This is what their tradition was. They did gods back in Egypt. That was their tradition. So to make a golden calf, to them it just made sense to them. But it was a travesty before one holy God. As they began, and not only that, the Bible says they began to go in revelry. They began to have orgies. It was a whole sexual thing began to take place. As they began to dance and celebrate around this God, what were they doing? They were doing Egypt. They were doing what they were used to. They were doing their traditions. While Moses is up in the presence of the Shekinah glory of God, the people are down there calling their God the very same as this God up there, the very people they've been together just a few days before, these very people, and they're going into all kinds of debauchery around this golden calf they called Yahweh. Now, I want to just pause because I'm going to come back to that story a little bit later. Let me explain how all this happens. Go with me to Paul in the New Testament. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Let's go ahead and find that. Romans 1, 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Did you see that part? It says, for although they knew God, they knew about him, they knew his ways, 
they neither glorified him as God. They acknowledged him as deliverer, but they didn't give him the honor, the reverence, the glory, the awe that was due only him. They did not observe him as holy. In some way, he was a big buddy. In some ways, he, yes, he was even bigger than a big buddy. A big brother sticks closer than a friend. A good God. But they lost the holiness of God. That's what Paul was saying. And I want to suggest, boy, it hasn't changed much. Like Paul would go on to say in verse 23, he says, And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like us, like man. In other words, man reduced God's image to corruptible man. The modern day church today, we are surrounded by a culture that worships things made of ourselves, our own doing, our own inventions. And we have been serving God in the image we have made him to be. And, I, and there's something about this. If we are to experience the glory of God again, we got to find out what, the, what his glory looks like and not based on what I say it looks like or what's been simply taught laterally to me of what he looks like or based on the customs and the things that are spoken of in this land today. That's the problem. That's the disconnection. And is it a problem? Yes, because if it weren't, we would see the glory of God manifest. So because of the lack of it, we get to back up and go, God, show me your ways because my ways aren't working. My ways don't work very well at all. So, an example, we've been serving God in the image we've made. Let's use some examples. Our superstars, our super athletes, our action heroes, the latest movie, the latest entertainer. Those things are awesome. Those things are amazing. Those things are wonderful. What is on the words of most people inside the church, what they like to talk about all the time? It's the latest thing. It's the thing that grabs our heart. It's it's grabbed our affection. It's grabbed our soul. And we talk about it like it's, like it's God. Well, now, we won't call it God. We don't call them God. And it's not that people who are skilled should not be recognized for their skills. But we've gone way beyond that. We've elevated that. They become a superhero. They become the affections of our heart, the affections of our soul, the affections of our own lives. And we've raised that. We've elevated that. And we call them what should be reserved for God? We're doing the same thing. That's why you've heard me say, there's certain words in the English vocabulary I don't want to use for anything in this world. I'm trying to keep them for him. Because if I use all those words for the things of this world, what am I going to say to him who's way infinitely beyond all that? See what's happened? I've reduced him down to my glory. I've reduced him down to my image. So there is no more glory of God. There is no holiness of God in my life. There's no fear of the Lord in my soul. I don't tremble in his presence. His word doesn't captivate me. Why? Because everything's inside, and I can't get it out. It happened over and over in Scripture, and it happens here. People are quick to acknowledge God. We're quick to acknowledge him as our healer, our savior, our deliverer. We say God is my friend. He understands my heart. Yet there is no hallowedness of the Lord. Our perception of God is filtered through how we have been culturally influenced today, 2024. Here's the big question. How can we see reverence restored when we have fallen so short of the glory of God? How can obedience prevail when disobedience and rebellion 
It's normal. Hmm. I want to say this. God will restore his reverential awe to his people. He will turn a people back to him. To him who is worthy of all glory, worthy of all honor. We are invited to behold his greatness. He still says, as he called them back thousands of years ago, he called them to Mount Sinai, come and see me. And they said, no, we'll wait at the bottom. But his invitation, according to James chapter 4, he says, if you draw near to me, I will finish it. I'll draw near to you. But you have to draw near on his conditions. You have to see him for a holy God for who he is, not based on your culture, my culture, and the world's culture. He cannot be defined by my culture. He can only be defined by himself. He's holy. Psalms 145 verse 3 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. It truly is. His greatness is unsearchable. You will grow in it, but never fully able to comprehend it. I'm going to use an illustration. I saw this and I found this humorous. Augustine. Augustine who lived a thousand years ago. He was a great leader in error over uh, Christian writings. He has written some amazing works of God. One of his works is still out there. You can read it. It's called The City of God. As he talks about God, he describes it a thousand years ago. He talks about it. But here's the interesting part. Apparently, Augustine, on his deathbed, he was surrounded by his closest friends. He was slipping away, breathing his last. His breathing had stopped. His heart apparently had stopped. A sense of peace had filled the room. And then those who were eyewitnesses, suddenly his eyes reopened. And his face was aglow, and he declared these words, I have seen the Lord. All I have written is but straw. And he died. Wow. He wrote some pretty impressive works. But in that moment, he transported it, transported back. He opened his eyes and said, I've seen him. And I haven't even begun to explain how great is the Lord. Now, might there be something we have yet to tap into? Might there be a whole dimension waiting should those who are ready to behold his glory. His greatness truly is unsearchable. Holy awe of God is in direct proportion to our comprehension of God's glory. I'm going to say that again. The holy awe of God is in direct proportion to your comprehension of God's glory. You can't understand, you can't comprehend his glory, you will not understand his holiness. We just won't. I want to suggest there's three things I've discovered in Scripture that three steps that helps reestablish the holy awe of God. The pattern is found in the Old Testament. The pattern is found in the New Testament. Let me give you the pattern. Here's the pattern. Divine order, God's glory, blessing, and judgment. Okay, and I'm going to follow through with these. I'm going to use three illustrations to show you this. I'm going to use the garden as an illustration, the very first story. I'm going to use a story kind of in the middle of the Old Testament talking of the tabernacle because God... Glory came upon the tabernacle, so that's a great illustration. And then I want to use New Testament because we're New Testament believers. I'm going to use the book of Acts chapter 2. It describes the glory. So let me use these threes as a pattern, and you're going to see where divine order, God's judgment, or uh, God's glory, and then either his blessing or judgment follows. So let's start with the account of the garden. Uh, You're going to see that as we look through these, God manifests, but before he manifests his glory, before he shows up, in manifestation, now we talk about God is everywhere present, omnipresence of God. I mentioned this last week. Now, so if you didn't hear last week, please just go on our website. You can get last week. But 
God is everywhere present, but there, you, you recognize there are moments in time where God manifests his presence. Where he, there's, scripture, there's a word called the Shekinah. His presence manifests in lives at particular points in time to a greater degree. You can't but know that when Jesus said, if two or three of you are there in my midst, my presence is with you. Well, his omnipresence, yes, but there's a manifestation of his presence. His glory becomes revealed. And there's a beholding, as we shared last week in Isaiah chapter 6, where he said in a vision, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. And in that vision, he saw the angels of heaven crying, holy, and the foundation shook in the heavens. It's the same. So let's go to the garden. Genesis chapter 1. If you go to Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it flows into verse 2. It was without form. It was void. The Spirit of God is hovering. And then what you begin to see in verse 3, 5, 10, the first few verses, God speaks, and six days of creation happens. God spoke, it came to be. God spoke, it came to be. What's happening here? divine order. God gives directive, and it happens. And when this happened, we see six days of creation when this happens. When this happens, the second thing is the glory becomes revealed. When we follow divine order, his glory is revealed. Adam, Eve, were supernaturally able to walk with God. They had unbroken fellowship. They communed with him day and night. It's just amazing, blows my mind. Wow. Adam was able to name every living creature. And some of the names are pretty amazing. Adam named them all. His wisdom, his knowledge, out of this world. Unbroken fellowship with Father God. Divine order, six days of creation, the glory came, the blessings, walked with God. Then came rebellion. Then came where Adam sinned against God. And in his disobedience to God, the third point here, when his glory is revealed, following his glory will be blessing. He walked with God. But in the glory will also be immediate judgment. When his glory is revealed, the judgment's not delayed. The judgment is immediate when Adam sinned, when they sinned against the Lord, judgment was immediate. They were moved from the garden, and immediately the ramifications of sin began to wear upon all of creation, including their own bodies, termination of their very life itself. They were removed from the awesome presence of God. Let's take this same picture. Let's go to the tabernacle. So we go to the book of Exodus. Several hundred years later, past, God would give a covenant to Abraham that covenant wouldn't be lived out for a number of hundred years later. When Moses came, he lived out the covenant given to Abraham. Moses now is fulfilling a covenant that God had promised many years before. And so Exodus is the story of the construction of the tabernacle. And God wanted to dwell with us. So he said, I need to, I, here's how you, there's the only way we can do this. You read over Exodus, and Exodus is an arduous chapter, an arduous book to read. It has so much detail. It goes on and on about the, the materials on the walls of the tabernacle. It had to be just perfect. 
It went on and on about the furnishings and the multiple furnishings inside the tabernacle. Details upon details. The height, the width, the breadth. And then when sacrifices were made, exactly how they were prepared. The, The lambs, how they had to be set aside, how they needed to be prepared. What could be, what couldn't be. Detail, detail, the priests, what they could wear. Every detail of their garment. Who could be the priest? Who couldn't be the priest? You read through the book of Exodus, it is filled with detail. Divine order. God gave the order. And when the order had been fulfilled, Exodus chapter 40, when the order had been fulfilled, you see in verse 34, it says, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, And here it was. This is what they were waiting for. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses, Moses himself, who was stood before the burning bush and kicked off his shoe, Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested upon it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Divine order. Took a long time. Details. Obedience to that. Then follows that the glory of the Lord came. It follows. When divine order has been established. So great was his glory, even Moses couldn't go inside. And it says the cloud came. Now the cloud was not the glory. The cloud hid his glory. Because Exodus 33, 1 Timothy 6 tells us, no person can look upon the Lord and live. So the cloud simply covered the glory. But the cloud represented he was there. But what happened? In that same context where the glory of God and the blessings of God came upon the people. In the same context, we go to number 16. And in number 16, in the same time frame, number 16, Aaron's sons, flippantly, they felt that God wasn't concerned about the details. They felt that they could do, they could twist things a little bit their own way. And in number 16, you read the story of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, offering an impure sacrifice... They were disobedient, and immediately the Bible says the ground immediately opened up and swallowed them and their families, gone. Hundreds of them, gone. See, pretty severe. And God said to Aaron, the father, says, don't weep over this, because such great tragedy has been done. It wasn't because God's ego was hurt. It's because judgment had just been diverted. Because if there wasn't the fear of the Lord, an entire nation risked going to hell. And so this actually stopped it in its tracks where people step back and say, you are a holy God and I'm not. And little things matter to you. Little things do matter before him. You see the picture, divine order, his glory is revealed, blessing, but in disobedience, immediate judgment. Let's go to the church. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. We're told to wait on the promise of the Holy Spirit. Oh, I love the book of Acts. It's, It's probably one of my favorite books, as many of them are. But in the book of Acts, chapter 1, God says in verse 4, he says, do not leave, but wait for the gift my Father has promised. Then just a few verses later, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. In other words, divine order, get ready, get ready, get ready. You go down to verse 13. It talks here, it says, when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. 
those present, they give the name of the disciples. And it says in 14, they joined together constantly in prayer. They began to call on the Lord. They began to wait on the Lord. You continue to see this as you go over to chapter 2. What are they doing? They are getting divine order in place. They are waiting on the Lord. They are seeking his presence. Then we come to chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And then suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. And we saw the house was shaken. We saw fire coming. We saw them speaking in tongues. We saw such a manifestation of his glory. Do you see it? Divine order. The glory revealed. The glory revealed. And we see some great things happening. We see as the chapter flows on, 3,000 Jews come to the saving knowledge of Jesus that one day. 3,000. And even more miraculous was from Peter. Peter, who couldn't get, put two good words be, be, before all of this, but filled in the power of the Holy Spirit when the glory was revealed, 3,000 come. We see at the end of chapter 2, we see the early church. They began to go from house to house. They were breaking bread. They were having fellowship. They began to give their money and help the poor, help the needy. They began to step into the injustices of the society. Wow. Transformation or what? Chapter 3, we see the same thing. They're thrown into prison, but the jailers can't keep them. They're right back out again. We see miracle upon miracle. We get into chapter 4, miracle upon miracle. Chapter 5, months have gone by. Chapter 5 starts off with a husband and wife. Their name's Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to God. In the midst of this moment of glory, they lie. We pick it up. Acts chapter 5, verse 3. They have just lied. They said they sold their property and they gave it all to the church. And it wasn't about selling their property. It wasn't about, God never asked them to do that as far as we know. It's that they lied. They thought they could serve God the way they created him. They had their own image of God. God will understand. God will not care. So they decided to manipulate things because God doesn't, he, he won't do anything. And so they lied to the Holy Spirit. We pick it up in verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? So here's the point. What made you think of doing such a thing? I'm going to suggest, because that's what the world does. That's what the world does. That's what we do. You have not just lied to human beings. You've lied to Jehovah. You've lied to God. Verse 5, when Ananias heard this, he fell down dead. Great fear seized all who heard what happened. And then just a few hours later, his wife comes home, Sapphira, and the same thing happens again. Verse 11, I mean, she dies. Verse 11, it says, And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these things. They were so wrong to believe God wasn't watching and didn't care. And like so many today believe when it comes to our actions. In Acts 5, 11, did you note that part? It says, And great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Did you note, it didn't say great fear came upon the city, it came upon the church. It didn't say just fear, it says great fear. It's a strong magnitude of holy fear came upon the church. Holy awe came upon the church. I've heard people say, well, why doesn't that happen today? 
But you got to remember divine order brings glory. And when there's glory, there's immediate judgment. It doesn't happen today because the glory of the Lord is not prevalent. When the glory is powerful, the judgment's immediate. When the glory of the Lord's removed, judgment's coming. It's delayed. It's held off. Now that's even more dangerous. You see, if it was immediate, then their great fear comes upon those who know. And our hearts get right. But when we don't see any negative results, we think it's okay. And judgment lags. What's happening? 60 to 90% of our children are walking away from God. Delayed judgment. What's happening? In our bodies, in our work, where the influence, prayer is taken out of the school, on and on and on and on. Where we, in the, we are already under a subtle persecution in the years ahead, will be greater persecution unless his glory comes. Delayed judgment. Now, which is worse? To have an immediate manifestation of God's presence? To shake godly fear into us, holy fear into us? Or to think it's okay and generations are lost to hell? Which is worse? Which is worse? Right? We struggle with that one. Before a holy God. Before a holy God. The glory. You go back to the Garden of Eden. His glory. Divine order. Glory. Immediate response. You see in the tabernacle. Divine order. The glory came upon the tabernacle. The two died immediately. You see in the book of Acts, immediately Ananias and Sapphira. There's other people who did a lot worse than lie, but the glory was revealed at that point in time, and the response was immediate. A holy God, a holy God. 1 Timothy 5, 24 says, The sins of some are obvious, reaching to the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind. They catch up. So why are 11 verses in this account of Acts chapter 5? Perhaps the backdrop could be the backdrop of where Ananias and Sapphira started out so innocently. I'd like to think that when they first got saved in that early move of the Spirit of God, that it was the most liberating thing in their life. I like to think that when Ananias and Sapphira, you know, things happened. They joined the worship group. They were part of a house group. They maybe were on the worship team. They sang all the right songs. They did all the right things. Maybe they were on TikTok. Maybe they were on Facebook. Maybe they were connecting with their friends. They had a lot of likes in their friends. You get pictures of them with people and saying, we are part of the church. You see them gathered together with all their church friends, having a great time with the Lord. And then comes Barnabas. The anointing of God is on that man, the presence of God. And he comes, and he just is moved by the Spirit, and he sells his land, and he gives it to the church. And all of a sudden, the reputation, the people's acknowledgement of blessing upon Ananias and Sapphira swings over to this godly man. What would cause them to lie to the Holy Spirit? I'm only guessing here, but could this be an accurate guess? That they began to struggle. Nobody's seeing me anymore. I used to be the center. I, they recognized all the good things I've done. I used to be the biggest giver in the church. I used to be the one that people saw and were blessed by. And so they sold property. They didn't quite do it all. And they began to lie, thinking that God really didn't care. I just wonder what all took. They came to the place, in order to maintain their reputation, they had to cover up questionable behavior. I want to say that again. What about us here today? In order to maintain your reputation, are you covering up questionable behavior? It's Ananias and Sapphira all over again. Wow. Seems harmless. Seems harmless at first. 
We cannot serve God in an image we've created of him. Holy awe of God is in direct proportion to our comprehension of God's glory. So let me bring this around. This past Monday, New Year's Day, I was reading the account of Exodus 32. And there was something as I was reading the account of Exodus 32 that gripped me. I was reading, Moses came off of the mountain. Remember, they had made the calf and they were in revelry. They were sexual orgy going on. Big old party taking place. And God and Moses were having a time, and God said to Moses, Moses, you better get down. You read the story. Moses, I'm, it's Wayne's interpretation. Moses, you better get down there. You better get down there. They're out of control. They've gone wild. The word wild. They've gone wild. They're not waiting in the presence of the Lord. They're not waiting for God to manifest himself. They've gone wild. Moses, you need to get down. You need to get down quickly. Moses had the Ten Commandments, the two tablets that God had fashioned with his own hand. Moses began to move down the mountain. He's coming down the mountain. He sees all the stuff going on. His heart is broken. Remember, Moses has just spent days in the presence of a holy God. He comes down the mountain. He sees all this taking, and the people are saying, Jehovah, pointing at the calf. Jehovah, the same one he just, and Moses' head's exploding because he knows there's no comparison. No comparison. Moses comes down off the mountain. One of the first things he does, he gets rid of the calf. Second thing, he says, will anyone stand up to the true God? And a group called the Leviticus, the Levites, stood up and said, we'll stand up. He said, gird on your sword and strike down your brethren. And the Bible said 3,000 of their brothers were slaughtered by the sword. Now, this is the part that got me. I'm looking at that, and the Old Testament's filled with stories like this. And I'm looking at that, and, and, and my heart, I, I'm looking at the atrocity of what took place. I'm shaken by the magnitude of horror of 3,000 bodies. Now, pause again. We live in a day that we are kind of immune to, we watch a lot of television, there's a lot of murders, and there's a lot of blood. We have gaming, and if you're a gamer, you, there's a lot of blood. And, and we get used to it. News reports, we hear it, we see it, we become accustomed to it. I'm going to hazard a guess that in real life, it would really, 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 really shake us up. But we become conditioned to this. But here in this story, I was shaken by the magnitude of the horror that they killed their own brothers, 3,000 of them. In my modern mindset, my casual approach to a holy God, I found this incident in the Bible a hard one to swallow. Almost unacceptable. I don't see how any of that could help God to slaughter 3,000 of your own, your family, your brothers. And maybe you feel the same way. That's exactly how I felt Monday. I'm looking. I'm looking through it. I'm sickened by the atrocity of a sword-carrying men slashing their way through cowering ranks of guilty Israelites, killing 3,000 of them in this orgy of retribution. But then God spoke to my heart this Monday. And he said, Wayne, he said, I want you to think about Moses. You see, to Moses, this bloodshed was not to be compared to the horror of the people's sin against the holy God. Their sin would destroy every generation that followed and send them to hell. It's not to be compared. And I came to an awareness, an awareness that my mindset, my view has been conditioned. Because Moses came out of the presence of God, he had a good view. 
But my view, when I looked at that, I just thought the horrors of that. But when you compare the horror of people spending eternity in hell, it had to be drastic. It had to be drastic. I want to suggest that some of the things that we are putting up with have been conditioned by the way we thought. And here's, here's my call. Go put divine order, things in your own life, in order. And then wait on the Lord. And when I wait, I don't mean just hanging out and he's going to do what he's going to do. Press in. Press in. Hunger for him. Hunger for him to reveal himself to you. Hunger to know him. Hunger to go deeper. He desires you to do that. It says if you seek the Lord with all your heart, you will find him. It requires all your heart, though. But there's things that keep us from that. So whatever that divine order has to be put in place, do it. Do it. Don't think you can get away with it. Right? There's a divine order that has to be put in place. But in the process of doing that, wait on him. Seek him. Stay. Move towards his presence. Hunger like a person would if you were held under the water to get back up and get breath. Hunger in the same way. Become desperate for him. And it's going to take time. It requires time. They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Didn't say it was going to happen fast. Part of your cleansing is your waiting. The season. And then watch what God will do. About a number of years ago, about 25 years ago, the first time Lori and I and my family experienced a season of God's presence where he overflowed the banks of our river and we came into a period of time, a manifestation of God's glory in a way that shook our whole family up. My son was nine years old. My daughter was about 11 years old during that time. And it, it, it was just deep. It was shaking, life transforming. We didn't ask for it, but we pursued when we were stirred that God was doing something. And there was a, 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 something really happened in our family. The reason I make mention of this is a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, Lori and I were down. We were visiting my son in Florida. And while we were with him, he went to his keyboard and he started playing a song. And I recognized the song. The song was a song that was a part of that move 25 years ago. That song was a song that with the presence of God, and it wasn't because the song was so special, I don't think. It was that song was like a memorial to what God did when there was the manifestation of his glory in our lives. He just transformed everything in our lives and our, and our children and our family and a number of families around us. There was such an amazing transformation that took place in this season and he pulled the song out. He began to play the song. And the song was called, is called, uh, Show Me Your Face by Don Port, uh, Potter. Now, we knew somebody when we were in Florida. We stayed with some people one time. We, we told them of the song and how impacting the song was. And they said, let me tell you our story. They were in a particular place. And the band, the person who he was leading, and it was a worship service. And there's 2,000 of them in there. And they, and they were just waiting on the Lord, waiting on the Lord. They were in a season of divine order. And they said, I kid you not, there's a cloud that moved into that auditorium. And it filled the auditorium. And they thought, you know, a speaker blew up or something blew up. Or back then, they didn't have special effects where you blow in fog. And they said the cloud came in and then they said it left. But they said there was such a presence of God. Such a presence of God. And they told us the story. And we said, woo, you know, it kind of gave us a little bit of goosebumps. And, and, but here's the song. Here are the words. Jonas was just playing this just out of nowhere three weeks ago. The words go like this. Moses stood on the mountain waiting for you to pass by. You put your hand over his face so in your presence he wouldn't die. 
And all of Israel saw the glory, and it shines down through the age. Now you've called me to boldly seek your face. And the chorus goes like this. Show me your face, Lord. Show me your face. Then gird up my legs. Look it up. If you have Spotify, look it up. It's called Show Me Your Face, Don Porter, John Potter. Show me your face, Lord. Show me your face. Then gird up my legs that I might stand in this holy place. Show me your face, Lord. Your power and grace. I will make it to the end. If I could just see your face. That was the song he was playing. And I said, Jonas, I know the song. You know, I was... I know the song, and it's so powerful. He remembers it. He wants to remember it. He doesn't want to ever forget it. He was nine years old when it happened. Now he's 34 years old. He was nine years old at the time. I said to him, I said, Jonas, you know, it's very interesting. That song was a pivotal song, but I said there's another song that became pivotal just two days ago, two days before I was telling him the story. Laura and I, when we were heading down into Florida, we just crossed the state line into Florida we were listening to a looping of songs from Spotify, Lori Spotify, and a song came on. She didn't even know she had it on Spotify. It came on, and the song began to play, and the song was perhaps about a third of the way through. Honestly, I was driving. The presence of God came into the car. I hadn't felt that in ages. And I was like, oh, and the song had the lyrics were going down too, and I was kind of looking at the lyrics and driving at the same time. And so I moved the song back up to the first, and I wanted to hear it again. And then I moved it back up to the first. And for the next half hour to 45 minutes, this, I just replayed and replayed and replayed. And the song was of a, a church, a recently of a church, where they were in the kind of the same situation where they talked about the presence of God and they were saying, God, we just need you to stay and not leave. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.